we continue this series, Conversations with Jesus, it took me back um, to a time when we were living in, on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, and many of you who know us know this part of our story, but we actually lived in that community during Hurricane Katrina, and uh, Hurricane Katrina hit and decimated our community. Our church was two miles from the Gulf of Mexico. We couldn't meet for three weeks. We had no running water. We had no electricity. And then as you know, we began to get back on our feet as a church, we could meet again. But something really interesting happened during that time that's kind of the inside story to all the outside stuff that was going on. I mean, the community experienced radical, radical change overnight with one event. And so the, the destruction area of Hurricane Katrina was about the size of Great Britain. And so the entire, you know, county after county after county was decimated. Um, and so there was a lot of change around us. But as we began to get back on our feet and, and the community began to recover, it became more and more obvious that we couldn't just go back to doing things the way we did them before the storm. Like we had to, we had to in, in have some internal change also because we were in a different environment. And it's kind of like this season. Now this is slower it's happened over a couple of years, not in one, one violent night, but um, it has happened in a similar way in that everything around us has been disrupted, and so in order to move forward, there has to be some internal change inside of us to, to um, relate to that external change. So for the first time in my life in that season, I understood people who resisted change. I didn't understand that before. I didn't understand it as a Christian. I didn't understand it as a person. I didn't understand it as a leader. But, but there were people in that season who resisted any kind of change that we wanted to make in the church, partly because they'd been traumatized and they just wanted things back the way that they were, and partly because they deeply wanted other people to experience God at the same level that they had. And, uh, and I found myself, for the first time in my life, kind of shifting in that group. And I saw people's lives changing, and I saw things happening, but, it, but there was a frustration growing in me because I was feeling like, yeah, but we didn't do this, and we didn't have that, and they didn't do it this way, and that didn't happen. And it was so uh, strange for me. I'd never had those feelings, but I, but I began to understand other people's resistance to change, it wasn't because they were actually against change. It was because they were convinced that until people had experienced God the same way that they had, that it wasn't the same. It wasn't the same experience or the same level or the same internal change. And I had to allow God to open my eyes to begin to see that He was actually working in ways that I hadn't seen before he was doing the same work. It just didn't look the way I thought it was going to look. And so that reminds me kind of of this time. God is moving, but I, I, I'm 100% I'm sure I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I'm 100% sure it's not going to look like what we think it's going to look like. It might not be all of us in one room or all of us in one room at one time if you're online with us. It might be in groups. It might be in the community. It might be in house churches. It might be at retreats. It might be in the marketplace. It might be through technology. It might be through all of that. 
I don't know what it's going to look like, but, I, but I'm saying to you, it's a very strange thing that you have inside yourself a good motive, but you can find yourself at odds with the Holy Spirit because the way he's working is different than the way he did his deepest work in your own life. So you actually have to remain flexible and open, and this is similar to what happened to a religious leader named Nicodemus in the New Testament. So let's look at John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So Nicodemus was a a high-ranking religious leader. He was a part of an elite group of religious leaders. Um, There were only 70 people in that group. It was a very small group. And there were hundreds and hundreds, thousands probably, below them that were religious leaders. But he was in this small group of 70, which was a very elite group that had dedicated their life to studying the Old Testament, to practicing their faith. Uh, This group, to get in this group, you would have had to have been sincere. He was honest. He was moral. He was a good man. He he was uh, a defender of the Jewish faith. And he lived with a deep conviction that the practicing of his religion uh, did a lot of good for the world, made made a good difference in the world, made the world a better place. This is why Jesus' conversation with him was so jarring, because you're not talking about a bad guy. You're talking about a good guy who was doing a lot of the right things. But his environment was changing. The spiritual life of Israel was changing. The way that people were going to meet God was changing, and it was being led primarily by this young, new teacher named Jesus. (laughs) And Jesus was doing miracles, and Jesus was teaching, and all of this, and so Jesus was teaching radical things. And so Nicodemus went to have a conversation with him, because he wanted to figure out what all this was about. Now, here's what I just want to say to you as as we jump back into this series These conversations with Jesus are intense. They're intense. Like they're more intense than I thought they were going to be when we decided that this was the series we were going to do leading up to Easter. They're they're much more rigorous. They're much more bold. They're much more confrontational. Um, You're you're just not going to meet Jesus face to face and have a conversation with pure truth in a living form and not be challenged. So that's kind of my um, viewer warning, okay? (laughs) Before we go in, Jesus um, didn't pull any punches. Uh, you're, You're talking to God in the flesh when you're talking to him. So the conversations with Jesus we've looked at so far is John the Baptist, the devil, and then today Nicodemus. So let's look at the conversation. John 3 verse 2. He came to Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Very interesting. Jesus hasn't even spoken yet. Uh, But already the fact that Jesus is present has created a, a conundrum for Nicodemus. How should he address him? What should he call him? Sir, mister, prophet, teacher? What, what should he say? Already there's this conundrum, and how he addresses Jesus reveals so much. 
The fact that Jesus was present in the moment required some internal process from Nicodemus. So here's the first thought we gain from this conversation. Remember, Jesus haven't even spoken yet. Number one, your belief about Jesus reveals your religion. Your belief about Jesus reveals your religion. By the way, according to the Bible, there are only two religions. One is a complete and total surrendered life to Jesus as the Son of God and the only atoning work for you and I sin. The other one is all the other religions. <laughs> There's only two. Jesus, Jesus wouldn't even um, engage the way that we do today with all the wrinkles and facets and nuances of custom-made religion. He, there's two. There's Jesus as the living Son of God or everything else. And so our religion reveals a lot about our belief. Now, when Nicodemus addressed Jesus, he said, Rabbi. So what's odd about that is Nicodemus is much older than Jesus and much higher ranking in a, in a teacher form. And so for him to call a younger person by that name of respect, that tells you a lot. Nicodemus is approaching Jesus with respect. So we're off to a good start. Jesus also had proven that there was something unique about him. He was doing all these miracles. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, we know that God is with you because there's no other way. In other words, Satan's not doing these miracles. This isn't voodoo. This isn't, this isn't some kind of magic. Like, your miracles are verifiable. People's lives are being dramatically changed and healed. And, and physical miracles are happening. So we know that God's with you. So what he's saying is, look, I know that you're a teacher and you're some kind of special teacher, some kind of unique teacher, unlike other teachers, because there's some really incredible things happening wherever you go. Now, here's the issue. He, he said, we know you're from God. In other words, collectively, us people who study the Old Testament and are the religious experts, we know that you've come from God. So what he's saying is, we have confidence in our religion, and what I'm actually trusting in is I'm trusting in my knowledge of the Old Testament, I'm trusting in my spiritual disciplines that I practice every day, and I'm trusting in uh, my own integrity, my own morality. So Jesus' greatest problem with Nicodemus was not his lack of knowledge, it was his lack of belief. So we're just setting the table for this conversation. Now, Jesus responds. Are you ready? Verse 3. Jesus replied very truly. That's a pregnant phrase that means for real, for real. <laughs> like legit, solid. I mean this. Like no joking. Like this is the, the truest truth. That's what he's saying. Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now that's a bizarre response because Nicodemus hadn't asked any questions. He was still rolling out the red carpet. He was still offering platitudes of respect. He was still celebrating Jesus' miracles. Yay, you do miracles. He hadn't even asked anything yet. You know what's incredible about Jesus? He knows the question you have before you ask it. He already knew the heart behind the situation. He knew what Nicodemus really wanted to know. And furthermore, he knew what Nicodemus needed. And Jesus, rather than 
responding back with platitudes of, oh no, Nicodemus, you're one of the greatest teachers in Israel, and you've done so well, and you're so faithful, and you're so moral, and you've done this, and you've done that. Jesus responds right back into his deepest need, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. That was his opening response. (laughs) There wasn't even anything else to it. Basically, he's telling him, Nicodemus, I'm glad you're a good man. And I'm glad that you follow the law, and I'm glad that you're moral, and I'm glad that you're integral, and I'm glad that you study the Scripture, but that's not going to work. You need to be born again. So that brings us to our second thought that we learned from this conversation. Your religion is not enough. Your religion is not enough. And, and that's a very, okay, so now we're starting to, it's starting to get a little more tense. <laughs> that's a very shocking thing to say to a good, sincere person who has dedicated their entire life to the study of the Old Testament and has wholeheartedly for decades embraced following God the best way they knew how. That is a shocking thing to say. Your religion, that's basically what he's saying. Your religion's not enough. So he dismantles Nicodemus's belief system in one fell swoop. <laughs> he just drops the hammer on it. And he actually called into question, uh, some people called Nicodemus the, 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 lead, uh, the leader of Israel, the, the teacher of Israel. So this guy might have even been the point man for the 70. And Jesus is talking to maybe the point man, and he says, I don't think you have as good of a relationship with God as you think you have. Because you're basing it on the wrong things. Do you, do you feel how intense this conversation? And it got there quick, didn't it? So this is a shaking and a tough conversation to have. It's a tough, tough thing to think that your greatest hurdle to having a true relationship with God, to being truly spiritual alive, being truly spiritual alive, is your own belief system. Like your own beliefs that you've invested in deeply across years and decades are actually the greatest hurdle. They're the greatest barrier that you have to get over to have a real relationship with God. Now, by this point, we're scratching our heads saying, poor Nicodemus. (laughs) Poor guy. I'm so glad that we're not him. But aren't we? Like in one way or another, aren't we really all Nicodemus? Haven't we all embraced belief systems that we thought were the right one, we thought would work, we thought would do the job, we thought would produce life, we thought would do something, and it didn't? Aren't we all, haven't we all kind of fallen short, as the Bible says, of the glory of God? Now, um, this is a this is an interesting thought if you fast forward to the 21st century and put it in our context. Because we're living in a culture where the fastest growing segment of the American population in terms of spirituality is a group called the nuns. Not the N-U-N, not Catholic nuns, but the N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. 
And basically the nuns are the people who say, I have no religion. I don't have one. I don't belong to any religious group. I don't belong to any belief system. And so the fastest growing religious group in America are the people who claim no religion. And so, so this is kind of a, um, d- a difficult conversation for us to have because that is in the water that we drink. It's in the air that we breathe. It's in the philosophies that are being shaped in our society and culture today that are shifting opinions and perceptions about what's going on. And if, if Jesus were kind of walking in the scene today, I feel like he'd be having the same conversation with modern America that he had with Nicodemus on this day. We're tricking ourselves. If we think in all of human history, there's this new belief system that we've come up with that's never existed before. I'm just going to be one of the nuns. I'm just, you know, I'm just not going to believe anything. Here's the truth. You and I were created by God to worship. And we are going to worship something. And if we're looking for something outside of ourselves, bigger than ourselves, to give our lives to, and if we don't find God, we will give our life to something else, some other belief. I'm going to go ahead and say today, some other religion. Now, let me tell you how I mean that. America is growing in pluralism, and so we're seeing an influx influx of other religions from around the world, but that's not what I mean. Culturally, America doesn't need an influx of religions from other parts of the world. We've created our own. And so let me tell you what what some of them might sound like, okay? Um, But let me give you one example. Uh, And and I I want to kind of set this up, okay? So in America, sports is a religion, Okay, let me give you an example, okay? Now look, let me give you the caveats, okay? Because I can tell, I can hear the ice cracking beneath my feet. I know, I know, I get it. I like sports. I can talk to you about March Madness. I can talk to you about the Super Bowl. I don't like baseball. I can talk to you about college football. So, So I like sports. I like to watch sports. I like to play sports. I like to see what athletes, I like to see who's being traded, and I hate to admit it, but I've even watched part of like the NFL combine, you know, the, like, oh, okay, so that's going to your round. Uh, so I like sports. I like to play sports. Let me give you the other caveat. Sports is not bad. Don't go, well, the pastor said the sports is the devil. No, I didn't say the sports is the devil, okay? So let's get all that, let's get all that out of the way. But I'm going to prove to you today that in America, sports is a religion. By the way, it's a bad religion. Because it will, leave you, it will leave you broken and empty and looking for something else. Okay? But I'm going to prove to you it's a religion. The longer I talk about it, the more uncomfortable the room's going to get. And you know why? Because there's this intuitive sense as an American that sports is something sacred and we ought not to be messing with it. That equals religion. Okay? So let's just talk about it for a minute with that caveat. So sports is a religion. Here's my thesis. Sports is a religion because it has sanctuaries. We have arenas and stadiums all over the place. And we won't have one for about 10 or 15 years and we tear that one down and we build a better one. And we keep, you know... Investing there. 
Uh, sports is a, a, a religion because it has a, a priest. The head coach is the priest, the legend. Uh, sports is a religion because we have worship gatherings. We gather together in stadiums and arenas and we do the wave and we, you know, and I do the wave, okay? Look, I, put the, I got jerseys. I got sports jerseys. So let's don't, I'm a fan, okay? It's not a religion though. I'm not a worshiper. So um, sports is a religion because it requires dramatic sacrifice. People are sacrificing huge amounts of time and energy and effort thinking that if I give enough to this, I will reap life back out of it. Boy. And discipleship. From the very smallest age a child can walk, we're putting a ball in their hand and a helmet on them and, you know, going out there. And, and I'll tell you how we know that because sports injuries have skyrocketed among middle schoolers. Injuries that never occurred in American life up until college are now happening and, and uh, exploding among middle school kids. You know why? Because we're pushing them too hard, too young, but our religion demands it. So we keep doing it. Uh, then there's the uh, sense of significance, the deeper meaning of life is found on the field, you know. Uh, we've all seen the movies where the coach is out in the field empty one night and he goes, this is my sanctuary, you know. This is where I get my whatever, my good feeling, my meaning, my significance, my mojo. And then there's investment. Jesus said, where your money is, your heart will be also. So did you know the highest paid public employee in every, almost every state in America, I think there's two or three, that almost every state in America, do you know who they are? A football or a basketball coach. That's where we're putting our money. That's where we're investing. And, and by the way, sports has heaven too. It's called the Hall of Fame. If you're good enough one day, you'll go to the Hall of Fame and your jersey will be hung somewhere. Right? So all belief systems are a type of religion. And we believe what we believe because we think it's the best way to have the most meaningful and fulfilling and satisfying life. And our actions reveal what our beliefs are. So let me give you a few religions that we struggle with in America. One is um, achieve a good life. This is, this is the belief that if I can just get wealthy enough, earn enough, have a good car, have two good cars, have a garage to put them both in, have a third garage so that we can put other toys that we acquire and have the right looking family and have the right social media presence and I can take the right vacations and I can get enough money and I can retire at 40, man, I will live a more meaningful life than everybody else. That's a religion. And by the way, it's the exact opposite of how Jesus lived. Another religion is um, to be a good person. Man, the dream of this religion is that one day when I have a funeral, people will stand up and say, man, they were a good person. They never said one bad word about anybody. They never did one bad thing about any, uh, to anybody. And what that religion says is, your good works. It's what you need to have a good relationship with God. 
And then there's uh, uh, the other one. This is kind of a newer one and is the exact opposite of the materialistic one, by the way, to achieve a good life, serve a good cause. This is the, here's why this has risen in America. We've chased the American dream till we've uh, become nauseated on it. And people have chased it and achieved it enough and, and regurgitated it and when it actually made me sick, it didn't help my soul. So we've swung the other way and we've said, no, 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 that's not the meaning of life. The meaning of life is serve a good cause. Serve a cause bigger than yourself. And, and that's why you find so much passion and even sometimes so much anger wrapped around a good cause because it's worship. It's religion. It's what I must have in order to be the right kind of person or a good kind of person. And then there's another one that's just I just call be a spiritual person. And what that means is, I, I, oh, I believe, sure, I believe there's a God. I believe there's many gods. I believe there's many ways to heaven. I believe that I, I'm, I'm a spiritual person. I believe I have a spiritual part of me, and I want to be aware of that, and I want to be in tune with that, and I want, to be, I want my self-awareness to grow, and, you know, all of this. And being a spiritual person can either look like that where there's kind of a pluralism and an embracing of all things spiritual, or it can kind of look like a cultural Christian that says, hey, I know all about, you know, I know how the church works. My granddad was a pastor. I went to kids' camp when I was a kid. I was raised in it. I got it. I know how it all works. And you can actually be depending on your either spiritual sensitivity or the fact that you know how it all works. You could be depending on that for your relationship with God. Now, let's look how Jesus answered that. Verse 5. Jesus answered very truly, for real, for real, legit. I'm not joking. This is, this is the truest truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. We don't have time to get into all the nuances of that. But let me give you the simplest way to understand it. Basically, Jesus is repeating the thing he's already said in expanded form. Number three, you must be born again. What Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a devout Jew, is Nicodemus, it's not enough. You must be born again. What Jesus is saying to modern America, whatever your religion is, it's not enough. You must be born again. Now, that sounds confusing, and by the way, you're in good company if it sounds confusing to you. It sounded confusing to Nicodemus, because he, I, if we had time to read the whole interaction, there's a lot of conversation here we don't have time to get to, but Nicodemus basically was saying, how can I, I'm an old man, how can I become a baby again and start over? And if you, the New Testament is written in Greek, and we read it in English, it's been translated to English. So if you'll go back to the Greek language and look at the phrase born again, what it means is, is born from above. So in other words, what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you actually need something to happen inside of you that can't come from earth. 
It can't come from humans. It can't come from you. It can't come from your religion. It can't come from your good works. It can't come from your achievement. It can't come from serving other people. There's something that God and only God can do, and He needs to do it inside of you to make you, uh, He called it born again, to become a new person. And, and, and there's nothing you could do to ever achieve that. Only God can do that inside of you. So, we might say, well, yeah, but that was Nicodemus. Do you know what Jesus' point is here to us? Remember, Nicodemus is a good man. He's not a bad man. He's sincere, and he's wholehearted, and he's dedicated his life and he had good standing, and he had influence, and he was a good teacher, and he was honest in every way that we know. So what Jesus is saying is, if a man that good needed to be born again, what do you think the rest of us need? <laughs> we need it too. Because most of us probably aren't as good as Nicodemus was as a person. But even he needed it. So, what's interesting about this is Jesus doesn't even give Nicodemus an opportunity to respond. Like, Jesus kind of takes over the conversation and just talks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus said very little. And I wish we had time to read all of that. I, I would encourage you to read all of John chapter 3. There's a lot there. But there is this reference that Jesus drew from in the Old Testament because he really wanted to drive this point home to Nicodemus. He didn't give him an opportunity to respond. He didn't give him an opportunity in that moment to be born again. But here's what he did say in John 3, 14. He said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now that's a, <laughs> you're talking about bizarre, that's another bizarre thing. What are you talking about? Uh, were they snake handlers? I mean, you know what I mean? Is it, is it that kind of deal? No, it's not that kind of deal. Jesus is pulling into Nicodemus' knowledge bank. He's pulling into an Old Testament reference that Nicodemus would have known perfectly. And he said, do you remember the time that God sent judgment onto Israel in the form of poisonous snakes? But even in God's wrath, there's mercy. And what he instructed Moses to do was to take a bronze snake and to wrap it around a pole and to hang it up, to hold it up in the, in the middle of Israel so that any Israelite that was bitten by a poisonous snake rather than dying, if they would come and look at the bronze snake, they'd be cured. And so you see, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus who would one day be broken and lifted up. He said even the Son of Man needs to be lifted up, would be lifted up on a cross. And for anyone in the world that would come and look at that crucifixion and put their belief and faith in that person, they would be cured. <laughs> what was really wrong on the inside would be changed. They'd be born again. It'd be a work that only God could do. It's like what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus is, 
Nicodemus, you might not fully understand this now. But the moment's going to come when you will understand it. And when that moment comes, I want you to remember what I told you about the bronze snake. Well, months went by. Maybe even a couple years. And we catch Nicodemus at the end of Jesus' life. And actually, kind of at the end of this conversation. And in John 19, 38, the Bible says this. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Jesus had been tortured and crucified and he had died. Now Joseph was the disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews, Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. <laughs> there he is. There he is again. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Remember that, 75 pounds. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But what I want you to imagine is that I want you to imagine Nicodemus walking up a hill and coming to a cross and looking at a cross and seeing a motionless, dead, beaten, bloodied body twisted on a stick like a snake. And when he looked at it in that moment, I wonder if he said, that's what he was talking about. That's what he was trying to tell me. The Son of Man was lifted up. And he was lifted up on this cross. That's the truth he was trying to get through to me. I can't depend on myself. I can't depend on my religion. I can't depend on my good works. I can't depend on my life philosophy. This is it. And we, and we have every reason to believe that Nicodemus was born again, that he had a born again experience because his respect turned to worship. What do I mean? He brought 75 pounds, like a wheelbarrow full, a wagon of spices and lotions. And, and, he, and he was one of the two people that took the dead body of Jesus off the cross and he wrapped them in clothes and lotion and spices. And he and Joseph of Arimathea went and laid Jesus' body in a tomb, 75 pounds. You know what that is equal in today's dollars? 150 to $200,000. That's what Nicodemus spent to bury Jesus. And that doesn't even include the price of the tomb. We don't even know how much that cost. His respect turned to worship. One day, one day, one day, you're going to see Jesus. One day, you're going to have a moment of clarity. It might be today. It might be tomorrow. It might be when you drive around our property and see the cross on the corner. It might be when you read a face on postbook, of Facebook. It might be when you have a conversation with a friend. It might be when you dig a dusty Bible out of an old closet and you open it for the first time in years. It might be this Easter. It might be months from now. One day, you're going to have a moment of clarity. 
And here's my prayer. When you do, you'll remember this. You'll remember that Jesus was lifted up for you. And he wants to give you a born-again experience. He wants to do his work inside you. I know, I know this morning, you might say, hey, we're in a church service. Like, people online, why would they watch if they weren't saved? I'll give you the national statistic. Now, it's older before COVID. I don't know how it's changed. But uh, I know this. In mainline churches in America, about 40% of people have never had a born-again experience. In churches like ours, it's about 17%. So I know for a fact that I'm talking to people today online and in the room who've never had a born-again experience. So let me ask you four simple questions. Number one, do you believe being spiritually open and sincere is not enough to bring you into relationship with God? Number two, are you willing to admit that being a good person and doing good things cannot make a right relationship with God? Number three, do you believe that Jesus' death on the cross was God's perfect sacrifice for your sins and the only way your sins can be forgiven? And here's the last one. Are you ready to ask Jesus for a born-again experience and to become a new person. It's that simple. So I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me, and I want to talk specifically for a moment to those of you who are online. You may be watching this in real time. You may be watching it sometime later. But here's what I know. Jesus wants to give you a born-again experience. And as we sing this song in just a moment, Our prayer team is live, they're online, they've been praying for you, and they're ready to pray with you. And today if you say, I want to be in a real and a right relationship with Jesus, I'm ready. I want you just to jump in the comment section and just type, I want to receive Jesus. That's it, I want to receive Jesus. And I'm telling you, wherever you are and whenever you are, as we pray together, God's Spirit is going to meet you there, and Jesus is going to move in, and He's going to do a work inside of your heart that none of us could do for you, and you can't do for you, but that God Himself can do for you. And if you have other prayer needs, as we sing this song, I want to ask you to put those in the comment section, and our prayer team will will pray with you. Before we um, sing this song, I want to ask you who are in the room and online, believers, this is not a time to be passive. This is a time to pray. So I want to ask you, as this song is happening and the Holy Spirit's moving, I want you to be interceding and saying, God, now rip the blinders off, open the eyes, open the heart. Lord, open, open the situation. Let, let there come a clear picture of Jesus this morning. And maybe you want to begin to even intercede for the people that you're inviting this Easter, that they would have a born-again experience. So, Lord, today we invite your Spirit now to move and to do what only you can do. 
God, only you can change a heart. Only you can change a mind. Only you can transform us on the inside. Only you can forgive sin. And Lord, today we come to you and we intercede. (laughs) And we ask you right now for those who are responding that you are meeting them there in a fresh way, in a powerful way. Tears are beginning to flow and lives are beginning to change and hearts are turning now. God, we thank you for that. Hearts are even turning toward a season of being prepared to meet you. Lord, we intercede for that now. In Jesus' name, would you just sing this song with us? Let's worship together.